All right, let's uh, get started. I'm going to put up a map just so you can see what's going on with the lands. Um, it's This is a, an official map because though that's not English up there, right? But you can tell it. There's a... Over on the east side of the Jordan River, you see the Dead Sea here at the bottom. You see that? And the river running up through that. On the east side, you see half Manassas, Gad, and Reuben. Okay? And then on the west side, you see Simeon with Judah, Dan, Ephraim, the hills of Ephraim, uh, Benjamin, Manassas. And then the red is Issachar. The purple is Zabulon. Asher is that up in the... And then Nephtali. Okay? I know that all brings great uh, meaning to your life, right? But it does, when you're reading all that, it's hard to picture it. It's hard to imagine it, and it helps a little bit. It's a little brighter over here if you're on this side can see it. It's a little brighter over here. But uh, one of the things that's hard to think about is they kept talking about the land east of the Jordan, but they came from the west. You get this picture. They came from Egypt. So you think about they had to come around it, all right? They came around it. So that's one of the things you have to remember. They crossed into the promised land, but they went around and then crossed over and right up against the Mediterranean Sea there. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is it's a large land. There's a lot of land there that that Joshua and his people conquered in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, you know, we, we get to the end of the book of Joshua. I mean, he's obviously older, um, but they they accomplished all this in a relatively short amount of time. So we'll just leave that up tonight as we're talking. Um, Some of you may, I don't know, if you've got a Bible, you may have in the back. Um, You know, they've got all these maps in the back. I've got one in mine, the land of the 12 tribes, and uh, some of you may not, but it's, I don't know if the pews in the Bible, the pews, the pews in the Bible, the Bible in the pews, right? We had pews in the Bible, it'd be a big Bible. You got Bibles in the pews. I don't know if those have them in there or not. You know, usually you think of that being back there, the missionary journeys of Paul and different things. But there is um, that in mind right next to it, the Exodus and conquest of Canaan as well. And you'll see they go across the the uh, Sinai Peninsula and they go over and then they come back around. And they've got conflicts and all that stuff, but. Um, it's uh, kind of an interesting thing. We uh, started this week kind of in the second part of Joshua, and we almost finished Joshua. Uh, if you are reading strictly on the plan that has it by the week, you probably finished Joshua. If we, you didn't, if you're reading the days in the one-year Bible, we finish Joshua tomorrow with that great passage of um, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Um, but we're, we've almost completed the book of Joshua. So tell me, in the book of Joshua, in, in total, I mean, we talked about it last week too, but you may have things in total, things you noticed or were interested in or questions you have uh, from the book of Joshua. Well, you get this picture that, you do get the picture that Joshua led them over there, that they got into the land, and then they kind of thought, oh, we're here. <laughs> you know, that's, they, and they had, one of the things you have to realize is they had been traveling together for, 40 years. And so then comes the time of, okay, now let's settle. And they were going to have to, as Joshua will tell them, you know, Ephraim comes and says, um, we'd like some more. We don't have enough. And Joshua says, well, go take it. 
you know, go go do what you're supposed to do. Go take it. And so you have this feeling that, that one of the things I think it shows is Joshua's strong leadership because they, they were afraid to kind of break away from that centralized leadership. And as they went out, they knew there were going to be problems and difficulties and cautions. And so they just kind of waited a little bit until Joshua prompted them. Yeah, I, I don't know if Shiloh's on this map or not. I'll have to used to I could read it from back there. I have to get way up here now. Um, I'm not real sure about that, Miss Sue. It, it's in southern. It's it's it was right next to where they came because Jerusalem. I mean they. I don't know. No, we'll talk about that in a minute. I mean they. You knew when they made the decision not to be in the Holy Land that it wasn't a good decision. Right. I mean. Well, I mean, you know, Moses, when they come and they say, we'd like to stay over here, and he says, okay, but it's a reluctant, but we're going to the promised land. You ought to be in the promised land with us. No, we'll just settle here. And you knew problems were probably going to come when they even recognized, hey, we need to be reminded that we serve the God of the Israelites, so we're going to put the altar up. And then you have that problem at the end of, well, is the altar to worship? No, it's not an idol. It's just reminding us to worship God. But the people over on the other promised land, they just went to the tabernacle. They didn't have to. Shiloh is actually in Ephraim. And I don't, um, it's kind of in the, there, it's in the white. Yeah, right in the middle. Shiloh, there's a place kind of by itself on the right upper. I think, excuse me, I think that's Shiloh. On there it just says, like four letters, but they're Hebrew letters that I think would be pronounced Shiloh. Yeah, but the, yeah, one of the things you have to remember is the land west is a lot better than the land east. I mean, they're not real far from the Mediterranean, but the land west is right there in the Fertile Crescent, what they call that that east, right there by the Mediterranean. I mean, it was that was good land, flowing with milk and honey, but. Yeah, they, they definitely could spread out. And you could obviously see what the biggest tribes were. They got the most land. You got Manassas and Judah um, down there. Other questions, observation, comments? Yeah, I I just think that it comes down to an issue of, of faith and trust and desire. And, you know, they, as we talked about, none of them were real excited about finishing the task except for Caleb. You know, Caleb said, let me go fight. I mean, when Caleb, when he's asking, making those requests, what he's asking is, let me go fight the biggest guys here to get my land. I want to go to the biggest battle. And he was young. He was only 85. And so had a lot of spunk left in him, right? What it said, he was 85 and he felt as good as when he was 40, right? So you, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't find much information on that. Yeah. Say that, Miss Jones. Yeah, it's amazing what you read as you read through that you see. Tell us where that verse is. It's in Joshua 13, 22. In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put the sword to Balaam, son of Beor, who practiced divination. You know, we sometimes, what's interesting to me is sometimes people hold up the story of Balaam like that's a good story. And Balaam... Balaam had, was talked to because he was disobedient. And then he led the Israelites astray. So Balaam is not, you know, a good guy in any way. 
I mean, over and over again, they say, don't you remember what happened to us at Peor where we went away from the Lord? You don't want that to happen again. Because that's where they went away from the Lord and what happened. The earthquake and the people were killed for being in relations with others and sword run through the couple and all that. Mistadi. Yeah, Joshua, one of the things I like about Joshua is he seems to be a humble leader. And he was a warrior, and he was fierce. But he does say, remember, this is not about me. This is not about us. This is about the covenant that God made with Moses and Moses' instruction to us. We're part of a grand story. Don't ever forget that. So it, I do appreciate that about Joshua's leadership. Now, what we read this week was not the most exhilarating text in Scripture, Right? Somebody said that there are very few people in this world who enjoy sitting down and reading books of archives. And that's what we kind of read. They got this land, they killed this people, and all that. I found a guy who wrote a commentary on this section, and one of the things he said is that he had never preached on it until he got called to write a commentary on it. And he, he this is a guy that, um, if you look at the outlines, he's got a, it's just funny because it's, He's got a, a chapter on one through nine, chapter one, one through nine, so just nine verses, and then the next one's just eight verses, and then ten verses, and then fourteen verses, and he gets to this section, and it's Joshua thirteen through twenty-one. And he just says, "I'm just going to preach all that at once. There's no need." But what's interesting is he pulls out of this about seven lessons from the settling. And so I'm going. These are not mine; these are his. Uh, guy's name is John, I think it's John Huffman. Um, and he, he says, first of all, and this relates to Manassas, Gad, and Reuben, don't become a borderline believer. Enter into the inheritance God appoints for you and rejoice in it. Uh, the will of God is the expression of the love of God. Um, if you look at, uh, since the tribe of Reuben had taken that land, it was this is the place to talk about Balaam. Because that was in the same area Balaam would have been. And so what you see is them not removed very far from what would happen. Um, there were other factors that happened. And what eventually happens is uh, that they will begin to move away from the Lord. Okay, um, So they would be one of the first groups of people of Israelites to wander away from the Lord. And part of that can be seen in their original decision to say, we, we really don't want to go fully in. We want to kind of be on the border, all right? As followers of Christ, it's easy for us sometimes to stay on the borders instead of being fully committed, all right? Um, lesson number two, he said, was be encouraged in your pilgrim journey. You have already received your inheritance in Christ and can claim, uh, receive your inheritance and spiritual blessings. The best is yet to come. So he talks about that with the two and a half tribes west of the Jordan. Uh, you got Judah in the south, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, and part of that was Caleb and his group of people. And they're always just embracing what the Lord had given them. And so they get there and they have a great land, plenty of land. Uh, they complain a little bit, but plenty of land and they're excited and they get to enjoy that. Back to what I was talking about a minute ago with uh, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, because I was looking for this quote here. Their location being there made them the buffer zone between Israel and everybody else. And so as a result, 
They became vulnerable to military attack, ungodly influences, and they were eventually brought down. We'll see in First Chronicles 5 um, that they are brought down pretty early, pretty early, okay? So that's one of the reasons. Then you've got the second group that gets in and they do good things. Lesson number three he takes from Caleb, which is, we are never too old to make new conquest of faith and the power of the Lord. Like Caleb, we can capture mountains and conquer giants if we wholly follow the Lord. He asked Joshua for mountains to climb and giants to conquer. Now, he could have easily, he was promised land. He could have gone to Joshua and said, give me the easy part. I have served faithfully for 85 years. Give me the easy part. But he said, give me the mountains and give me the giants. No matter how old we become, we must never retire from trusting the Lord. In Joshua 15, 13 through 19, what we also see is Caleb providing for the next generation. His faith rubs off on his son-in-law, Othniel. Anybody know where else we'll see that name, Othniel? He's a judge. We'll see that in Judges 3. So Othniel, some of that faith rubbed off on his son-in-law. And there's that part where he gives the, kind of gives way and inheritance to those that are after him. Uh, what John Huffman says is the older generation must provide for the next generation, not just materially but spiritually. Senior saints must be examples of believers and encourage the younger generation to follow him wholly. Um, so that's an important thing. Caleb's story to me is just a fascinating story. I mean, he's with Joshua. and You know, one of the things that I thought about is Caleb could have complained as to why he wasn't the leader. Right? I mean... There were two spies that came back and said, let's take the land, and it was Joshua and Caleb. But you never get the sense that Caleb was mad or upset. He just wanted to be a part. And so he's kind of playing second fiddle, and he gets across the border, and it's not a, I'm tired of your leadership, Joshua. Let me go do my own thing. It's, I'm ready to continue to fight for what's mine. And we do see him at an age when it would have been easy for him to kind of give up. He says, nope. I'm going now. Most people think Joshua was older than Caleb. So if Caleb was 85, Joshua may have been close to 100. We don't know that, but most scholars feel that. Well, if you do, you'll prove a couple of scholars wrong that I read. But you may. Um, I mean, and I mean that. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, if it's in there. But they think that at some point Joshua was was older, and so he may have been some seniority, which was part of the reason that. Joshua was the leader. But you never see any kind of disgust with Caleb. He just does his job. Anybody else? Is that somebody calling in with a question? We got a Are you phoning a friend over there, John? What'd you say? Say the first part of that, Jack. Right, and and, and my point is about Caleb um, is that it was early on decided it was Joshua, and Joshua kind of learned on the job. And, and you never get the sense that Caleb was jealous or bitter or upset about that just kind of was there Um, I I love how Joshua mirrors Moses in getting bold at the end of his life right remember Moses gives that whole Deuteronomy and at the end of Deuteronomy you start getting that thing now you choose you these words are your life remember Mr. Reese these words are your life they're not just words you must use them you must live them you must be a part of him. And you see Joshua getting to the end of his life and saying, listen, don't throw this all away. It's almost like as they get to the end of their life, they, 
They're, they're excited about the generation that's coming, and they want them to take up the mantle and go, but they also don't want to see the work that they've done kind of falter. And so whatever you have to do, follow the commands of the Lord. Follow what he tells you to do, but choose this day whom you're going to serve. And so I appreciate the boldness of Joshua as he comes to the end of this time. You know, you get those first 11, 12 chapters of Joshua, and then you get, and Joshua, you're getting old. I mean, you know, that starts, it's time to start dividing up the land. He divides up the land, and then it's time for Joshua to kind of give his final declaration. And he doesn't kind of go off the scene with a, um, a passivity or a, he doesn't try to, to appease everybody. He just makes it very clear. And I know many of you have not read the end of the book yet, but you know that verse where he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Some of you have it in your house. As for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Um, and he just I appreciate that boldness in his life. Joshua was a guy that went through a lot. I, I read this quote this week um, from uh, that comes actually from Scott M. Scott Peck, The Road Less Traveled. Some of you may have read that book. It's a pretty popular book. But he said, uh, this is what he says, and I think Joshua, one of the things that made Joshua a great leader is he understood this. He said, life is difficult. It's a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see it, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand it and accept it, life is no longer difficult. Because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly about the enormity of their problems, their burdens and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief noisily or subtly that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be and that has somehow been especially visited upon them or their families or their tribe or their class or their nation or their race, even their species, but not on others. I know about this moaning because I've done my share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Do we want to teach our children to solve them? Moses helped Joshua see that life was not going to be easy. You know, you talked about his apprenticeship. Joshua, I believe, would have been, and we have stories of this for sure, but every time that Moses heard all that complaining, Joshua would have been there. And so when a tribe comes to him and goes, we ain't got enough land, Joshua, what are you going to do about that? He wasn't new to him, just, well, go take it. I mean, that's your responsibility. I think what part what made him a great leader is he understood that life is about overcoming difficulties, not just recognizing difficulties. Because he was among a group of people that could recognize difficulties pretty well. Right? Yeah, they could. But one among a group of people that like to overcome them very well. Anything else you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> These people thought they had. They were, their parents said, well, our parents didn't do that, but we did. Well, we won't be like our parents, right? We will not make the same mistakes our parents made. Our generation won't make the same mistakes the previous generation made. That line's been being said since before the Israelites and has yet to be accomplished. They were the little tribe. Yeah. He was... He was the younger brother that was all shielded, and his family was treated as bats. I mean, his tribe was treated 
as that as well. I mentioned this a couple of times in meetings we've had over the last couple of days. But I just I, I just really like the book of Joshua, and uh, there are just some really good lessons in it, some really good things to to see and to notice. Um, Mark Twain, in his autobiography, said that a biography is but the clothes and the buttons of a man. You cannot truly write the story of any man. And what we have basically in this book are the clothes and buttons of Joshua. We don't have a full biography, but we have a lot about him. And you think about the preparation he had, the the um, suffering that he would have gone through in Egypt, the submission that he saw Moses given to the Lord, the delay that he was a part of and saw, even though he was not responsible for it. I mean, you know, I can imagine at times Joshua and Caleb thinking, Lord, just let us go. You know, I mean, let's quit putting up with these people. Just let the two of us go. We'll, we'll go over. We'll take our families. We'll be okay. But when you think about his leadership, one of the things you see most of the times is he walked with God. I mean, he consulted God. He asked God uh, for blessings. He asked for God's guidance and direction. He, before he went to battle, he would pray. He would seek God. Uh, at the end, as we talked about, he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. He was a man that was constantly looking to God. You think of a man as a courage. I mean, he was a guy that wasn't afraid to run into battle. Uh, one of the things that's impressive to me is, especially at the Battle of Ai, that we talked about a little bit last week, that when he takes the men up there, he is there with them, uh, fighting with them, being a part of the charge with them, that he was a courageous man. He had a plan, and he followed it. Uh, he felt it was God's plan, and he went along with it. He didn't quit, and there were times when he could have, when it would have been easy to, when AI happened or they walked up and saw Jericho. He could have said, you know what, the Manassas and Gad and Reuben don't have a bad bad idea. Let's just all stay over here. Uh, I will show you where Jericho is. Uh, you see Benjamin there in the middle? This, uh, Teresa was talking about Benjamin. Benjamin, see that white one? Just shake your head. You see Benjamin up there? Okay. On the far right is a city, a little dot near the river. And that's Jericho. Okay? And so um, so you understand that that's not there. I mean, that's right there. One thing you don't see on this map is a town called Jerusalem. Right? It's not on here. Why is it not on here? It hasn't come to be yet. They haven't established it yet. But uh, Jericho, does everybody see where Jericho is? Everybody that cares to see where Jericho is, you see where it is? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But, so you see that, he, and then in all of it, he glorified God. But you, you heard talk about that he always referenced Moses, but he always referenced God's plan in all of this, too. He just constantly referenced him. Turn with me to Joshua 3, 5. One of my favorite verses. I have no idea. It'll be a couple of weeks ago. Joshua 3, 5. Start looking around April 12th, 10th. That's a pretty good guess, wasn't it? Joshua 3, 5, the 11th, whenever. I just love this short little statement. Joshua 3, 5 says, Joshua told the people, this is when they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, consecrate yourselves. Now, what does that mean? Prepare yourselves. Repent, your, repent before the Lord. Purify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Make yourselves holy. Make sure everything's right. For tomorrow the Lord 
will do amazing things among you. As we've gone, you know, this, what we've been reading has echoed a lot of what the Lord's been doing in my heart about where we are as a church, and I've shared a lot of that with you. And I feel like we're at the point right here, I've mentioned this, at the Jordan River crossing, ready to go, and the Lord is just kind of saying to us, it's time to get ready to consecrate yourselves because tomorrow, in the near future, the Lord is about to do some amazing things before you, among you and with you. I think that's the story of Joshua in a nutshell. Make sure you're right with the Lord, and let's watch the Lord do amazing things. All right? We won't touch Joshua next week because there's only one chapter left, and we'll be in Judges, and you'll have questions about Judges. Uh, I think next week we may get to the story of Gideon. I'm not real sure, but we'll be reading Judges and, and getting... What, where One of the things that will change pretty rapidly here is we will go from really focusing on one or two people for long periods of time to talking about several people in pretty quick order, okay? And so for the most for most of what we've talked about, you think about it, we've talked about Abraham's family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Moses and Joshua, right? So about five people, and we've read six books. In the book of Judges, we're going to talk about more than six people, all right? We're going to be getting quickly doing some things. And even the books where we talk about, like, Ruth for an extended period of time, Ruth is a short book. Um, and what we have now, we're in that phase. If you got that Old Testament chronology last week, we're in about a thousand-year period of we're going to see lots of activity in a thousand years. Um, where God is going to move quickly in some things, establishing a kingdom. The kingdom will split. The things will be attacked. You'll have prophets, all of that. But we'll begin to see that we're moving from these long relationships with Moses to a two-chapter relationship with Gideon to a one-chapter relationship with Deborah to, you know, those kind of short-term things. And then before long, we'll get to the story of David, Samuel, David, and we'll be back to extended discussions all right miss rachel i know i did not look at that miss rachel miss rachel's asking why they did not um burn anything but hazor now i know why they burned hazor and hazor was the um hazor was the head of these kingdoms it was the major city and so I can understand why they would burn Hazor. I'm not sure why they didn't burn the other ones. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's obvious that that Moses, that Joshua took the land, that he killed the people, um, and he left nothing undone of the Lord. And so it doesn't seem that he's that he's um, chastised for not burning those places, Miss Rachel. But you know, I don't. Most cities in that day were built on mounds, uh, on hills. Um, for protection, you built on the bluff, or you built um, where you could build a wall around. Jerusalem is built on a hill, and that's why. And when you read in scripture, from whatever direction you're going, you went up to Jerusalem. If we talked about going up, we think we go north, but everybody talked about going up to Jerusalem because you built it on hills. And so, um, them being built on mounds wouldn't necessarily have been unique. I don't think. I don't think there was any significance to the mounds, um, but I don't have an answer for why they didn't burn those cities. I'll look at it this week, and if I find anything substantive, I'll let you know, Miss Rachel, but I didn't see that in any of my 
reading. Okay? The idea was that they, as long as they were in the city of refuge, they were okay. And the idea also was that, that somehow when the priest um, passed away that they were released uh, in some way. I don't understand why necessarily it was a God. I mean, the priest was seen as God's representative uh, in that in that place, and so they wouldn't pass that responsibility on to the next priest because ultimately it was up to the priest to help determine, uh, you know, what was happening. And and part of what that protected against was, uh, you know, let's just say you committed manslaughter, Miss Carol, uh, and you went to a city refuge, and that priest said, okay, you, it was manslaughter, not murder. You're protected. And then the next priest comes in and says, no, that was not manslaughter. It was murder. So there was some protection there. Um, Seas of Refuge are a real interesting thing because we don't have very much evidence that they worked exactly like they were supposed to work. Does that make sense? I mean, we, we know that they were established. We know that they were supposed to have. It's kind of like the year of Jubilee we talked about. We don't have a whole lot of evidence that people gave back all the land when they were supposed to and all of that. Um, it's also interesting that the names they were given, and I, I had this, and I, I don't know that I, let me see if it's in here. Um, I, it was in a book I read, and I don't know that it, it's not in this book, that the cities of refuge are given unique names. Um, Kaddish, which is righteousness, uh, there's, they all are names that have to do with redemption. Um, it, they all are names that would eventually be used of crying out for a deliverer that would bring redemption. And so there, there are some people that take that and move it. And I, I'll look for that because it was really, somebody, somebody took the verses in the New Testament that relate to cities of refuge words and put them together. Um, they all they say that they some people take it and relate the cities of refuge to an early form of Christ atonement that that the worst of our sins would be washed clean just like in the cities of refuge they're given refuge all right let's move on to Luke things in Luke you noticed we're in some familiar stories here as well right Luke nineteen. Luke 19, After Luke 19, starting in verse 11, I don't know what day that is, but the 18th, Miss um, Carol's asking about that because it's always kind of been talked about as there are three servants and, and do that. Here, here's one thing that, that most people think. Luke has some unique parables and some unique twists on parables from the other Gospels. Part of what they think is that Jesus did not tell those stories necessarily just one time. Does that make sense? That he may have, these are parables, they're illustrations, they're stories. He may have told them in different areas, and he may have used them in different ways in different places. Um, And so in one place he told this story, this parable, and he just said there were three guys that were given money. Another place he talked about the ten, but the principle's the same, so he gives the three illustrations. Um, So they may be writing from different times he told the story, or they may have just focused on different parts of the story he was telling. Not, um, there are a couple of stories in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are, there are some discussions of parables, some things. Um, yes. 
but not as extensively as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and part of that's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written around the same time using similar sources uh, to similar audiences, and John is completely different. I'm pretty sure the sower, the parable of the sower, I'm trying, now you've asked, you've asked one of those questions that I, it's made me interested in what's in there. I think the parable of the sower is in John, um, but we'll be there soon. We can look. Be looking for that, Miss Sue, as we read. You see parables in there. I think there are. We were, uh, there was a story of the ten lepers healed. One comes back and gives thanks. Jesus kind of points that out. Um, there's the idea that we've got to be ready, that when Christ comes, we won't have time to set our affairs straight, and that we won't want to set our affairs straight. Um, two women will be grinding grain. One will be taken, the other left. Most people, um, and we won't talk about where you end up on this subject, um, most people that, that, that believe in pre-rapture, I mean pre-tribulation rapture uh, of the church, take uh, this passage as one of their strongest verses to teach that. Um, so, I mean, because it says one will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Um, those that are not pre-tribulation rapture, and if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about them. But if those that are not pre-tribulation rapture um, say that it just proves that it'll come at a moment's notice and uh, you may not have a second chance. So, But it's an interesting passage of Scripture there. You got the parable of the persistent widow, that just uh, which is an interesting parable. The judge won't the judge won't change it. She just keeps nagging him, right? Just wears him out, and he finally wears down. Uh, I have two sons, and understand that uh, when a new Lego comes out, I fight hard for a week, and then finally it's just okay. We'll go get it. All right. <laughs> so. And the, and the point there is to continually ask and be persistent in your prayer. Not necessarily that you'll change God's mind or that you'll nag Him to the point that He'll give up, uh, but just be constant. All right? The Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee stands up and prays that wonderfully beautiful prayer, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Uh, so we don't hear those on Sunday morning offertory very much, but uh, the point is the Pharisees did pray that. That was part of what they did. Thank you, Lord, that I was not a woman, that I'm not a sinner, that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not. And they listed all the things they weren't. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not. And they would publicly pronounce that so others could hear. Uh, the, most people believe this parable is um, something that you could witness pretty easily because the, the Pharisee would walk in and see the tax collector and say out loud, Lord, thank you that I am not like the, him. Um, so, you imagine how that would make you feel coming to church if you walked in and the person behind you said, "Lord, thank you, I am not like this person sitting in front of me." I mean, it's not yeah, self righteousness is the point. Um, now we have other ways to make people feel like they might be inferior. I mean, that church hadn't done that, but we need to be on guard constantly about making sure that our righteousness, our um, worth, comes from Christ, not from ourselves. And that all people are created in God's image and deserve our love and compassion. Now, he was talking to, you know, this is coming right after the rich young ruler. And uh, uh, 
And, and it comes out of a question of Peter saying, Lord, Lord let's make sure that we're on the right page here. Because he, he just said, it is impossible, you know, it, it's like a rich man getting into heaven is like going through the eye of a needle. Camel going through the eye of a needle. Can't, can't happen. Now, there are all kinds of discussion in, in scholars about is there a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle and that a camel had to bend low and it was difficult. Jesus doesn't say it's difficult. He says it's impossible. I think he meant a camel going through the eye of a needle. Okay? And so Peter, they, they go, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? It's, that's impossible. And he says, with God, nothing is impossible. And Peter says, well, what about us? We've, we've left it all, Jesus. Or almost like, are we on the right track? Let, let's just make sure, because we've given up a lot. And Jesus is comforting them there. Don't worry. Those that have given up all those things will surely be rewarded. You've done the right thing. You've made the right decision. It goes back to what we talked about, this major commitment. We've talked about this a couple of times, that Christ, following Christ is a major commitment. The uh, I, I came to divide, not to bring peace comment we talked about, I think, last week. The idea is that, that it's not an easy thing to be a follower of Christ. And perhaps the most diff, or the, or the most egregious falsehood we have told people in the South in America is that it's an easy decision. It's not. It is something that requires your life. It's a lifelong, eternal commitment that requires all that you are. And that may mean giving up, that may mean sacrifice, but it is worth it because of the reward that comes in Him and in eternity. He's not saying everybody just leave your family. But he is saying that if I've called you to do that, you need to do that. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's saying, like Danny said, it, it goes back to that verse we talked about where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Is the whole thing is, he, you've given everything for me, and you'll be rewarded. I, I remember the summer that I did uh, Crosspoint, which is like Center Kid now, it's kind of merged into that. And I was camp pastor. And uh, I left um, Union, and uh, um, Susan and I weren't quite dating yet. We would end up dating at the end of that summer and got engaged about a month and a half later and married within the year. But I knew I liked her. She just didn't know she liked me yet. Uh, I was convincing her. I was I was this woman with the judge. I was constantly persistent and... Uh, but but I had to say goodbye to her. I said goodbye to my parents, and it was my first. I had been, I had spent the previous summer in a church, but I was 45 minutes from my parents, an hour from my parents, and this was kind of my first big thing. And I went to work with a group of people that I had never met in my life, and I was going to spend the summer with them, and I was going to be in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, and. Uh, the off the coast of Louisiana. I'm not, you know, not anywhere. And I remember laying in bed one night and just saying, Lord, I, I made the wrong decision. I'm not, you know, I can't do this. And the Lord just said, open up your Bible. And I, I do not do this usually to you know, open up the Bible wherever it lands. It's what the Lord's telling me. You know, somebody, I always had a professor in school that said he remembers one of his friends went like that and it said Judas went and hung himself and he turned it over. 
did another page, go and do likewise. He said that's it's always dangerous, right? And so I just kind of opened it, and it opened to this passage. And I hadn't left him for a long time. I mean, you know, I was just there. But I remember the Lord saying, Lyle, are you committed to me? Are you committed to my work? Are you committed to everybody else? And I, that night, knew I had made the right decision. It was one of the best summers of my life. It matured me in ways that, you know, I couldn't have been matured if I was working at Dyersburg Fabrics, uh, running a quality control machine for fabric, which I had done a couple of summers, or, you know, working on staff with people I knew. It, it just matured me. But I remember that verse, and every time I read that verse, um, I think back to that moment uh, in Georgetown, Kentucky, sitting in a dorm room, feeling completely by myself. Um, and in some ways, at some point, and I'm convinced of this, he calls every one of us that are followers of Jesus to make a decision that doesn't make sense to everybody else. And we have to, in faith, trust him and do it. I am sure that some of the families of these guys thought they were nuts. Jesus' own family thought he was nuts. You're our brother. You're not the Messiah. And yet he called them to come. And so he's just reassuring them, especially because, <laughs> I mean, we're in, we're in Luke 18. What happens in Luke 20? Or actually, at the end of Luke 19, what happens? They enter Jerusalem, right, for the final week. I mean, we're days away from Jesus being crucified, and he wants them to understand right now, you have not made a mistake. Because in several days, he's going to be hanging on a cross, and they're all going to think, we have made the biggest mistakes of our lives. And he wants to assure them so that when he comes back, that he can say, see, I told you. You left it all for me. Don't worry. And it comes right out of the rich young ruler who, I mean, it sounds like a ridiculous plan. Give up everything you got and come follow me. And they kind of like, well, Jesus, we've kind of done that. We're okay, right? Because, yeah. I know that wasn't really the question, but I went there anyway. Tell me exactly where you are, Miss Joan. There are about 15 different ways to answer that question, Miss Joan. The question is, in, in 2124, we got the signs of the ends of the age. Um, if you're reading through the daily Bible, you're not there yet, but we'll talk. We'll talk about it because if you're reading through the weekly thing, it's the last thing you you read. Um, the, there's a there's a statement in there that says they will all fall by the sword and be taken as prisoner to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's a lot of discussion about um, what the times of the Gentiles are. Jesus talks normally about the times for the kingdom of God or this present age versus the age to come. It, this is a unique phrase that some people think he's referring to the age to come, which began in his crucifixion and resurrection and continues even while the present age continues, that you have um, the present age that has been going since Adam and Eve and the fall, and it's been going, and when Jesus died and rose again, that you have the present age and the age to come going simultaneously. The second coming will happen, and this will end, and then age to come will be forever. 
And so some people would say the age of the Gentiles is that age to come, uh, here and now, present age together, uh, kind of mixed. And that's why there's so much warfare and things happening spiritually as well as physically in the here and now. So I try to confuse that issue as much as possible. So that is one interpretation of that, yes. That's a good interpretation of that. There's some that think the age of the Gentiles will end when Jerusalem is completely occupied by the Jews again, which is not currently. I mean, it, Jerusalem is in Israel again, but it's not completely. I mean, there are mosques in uh, Jerusalem, but if you're on this side of <laughs> the resurrection, you wonder if that does that mean when Christians the people of God, the new Israel, fully through Jerusalem. So there are some people that get a lot of theology of Israel here. Um, some people just think that he's talking about AD 70 when the Gentiles come in and destroy Jerusalem and that it's going to go on until he comes again. Somebody had Sue. By those that believe it, it is. There are days that I do. Um, now I, I'm a I'm a post tribulation rapture. There are pre tribulation rapture, mid tribulation rapture, post tribulation rapture, no rapture, um, and very good evangelical, biblical, solid scholars are all over the map on that. Pre-tribulation, dispensational, rapture theology is very new in the, the last 120 years. I know you do. Okay. And if we had our choice, we would all be tribulation. The, the reason there are some people, um, I mean, it is four till seven, and we're about to get into an hour-long discussion. There, there, are, there are arguments on all sides of the issue. Um, historical premillennialism, which is where I generally find myself, is a post-tribulation rapture with a millennial reign discussion of the end times. Um, that's where I find myself. That's where people I respect a lot find themselves. I respect a lot of people that are in pre-tribulation rapture camp. So, Some of you are just glazed because you don't know what that is. Yes, sir. We'll, we will. Here, and here's the, thing that, here's the thing that's true about it. It doesn't matter what I believe about it. I mean, it matters what I believe, but it's not going to change how it's going to happen. It's going to happen how it's going to happen. I, I, I do have a problem saying that I can be sure how it's going to happen exactly because Jesus, while he was on the earth, didn't know for sure how it was going to happen, when it was going to happen. Yeah. And he, he even says in here, we don't, we don't know when it's going to happen. He says in this passage, you'll read tomorrow if you're reading day by day. He says, you know, he gives them all this stuff. Oh, yeah, we see that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's not it. That's the birth pains. That's the beginning. Well, the birth pains have been going on for thousands of years. So I, I'm okay with ambiguity and mystery and some things about the end times. We would not. And part of my argument for that is, you tell the people right now in China that they're not in tribulation. Now, I understand that we're talking about heightened worldwide, you know, 
but you, you talk to the people that are being beaten every day because they're believers. The millions of people across this planet. More people have been killed in the last 100 years for their faith in Christ than in all other centuries combined. And you go to Malaysia and you go to Senegal and you go to those places and say, well, I don't want to be in the tribulation when it comes. And they're praying not that they were removed from tribulation, but that they will be faithful in the midst of it. And so it's degrees of tribulation. Since, since Christ has come, persecution has existed. It's degrees that we're talking about of the great tribulation.